Hello and welcome to Old Testament in Faith, part of the In Faith series of podcasts. I'm your host, Daniel Didek, and this week we're in Genesis 4. I could say that we're continuing the theme of the consequences of the first sin, but really that could be said of the entirety of human history, and so loses its significance. Instead, what we'll find today is the early establishment of religion and the interplay of faith, religion, and sin. Let's check it out. A couple things moving and shaking this week, starting to sort of gear up for going back to Cleveland Metro Parks. That's still very much in the cards. Going to be meeting with the trails manager on Monday to kind of talk through some things and get some some reading to finish up over the winter season to help hopefully make me a better employee there. And it's interesting. I mean, I've been reading a little 60-page pamphlet on trail design and layout. It's one of those things, I tweeted this earlier in the week, I think, that like everything I do, not everything, but a lot of things I do, when I'm doing it, it's my most favorite thing and I want to do it forever. And this is definitely one of those things that when I'm reading about, you know, how you go about designing a trail and then laying it out and, you know, beginning to start to build it, it's really fascinating stuff. It's one of those things that I don't know where necessarily it comes from because it's not, you know, reading or scripture or writing or any of those things, but I don't know if it's the problem solving aspect. You know, in my writing, that's a big thing about writing that I love doing is figuring out how to make the story work, uh, what scenes I need, how to build the characters, and figuring out how to make all that work and make it interesting and fun is, to me, becomes kind of a problem solving task. You know, designing trails, I ride mountain bikes quite a lot. And so figuring out how to design them to, you know, that they'll end up as something fun and they get you from one point to the next while you're, you know, you're juggling all these different things of like, what can the the landscape handle? And, you know, depending on what the use of the trail is going to be and how heavy that usage is going to be, there's a lot of different factors working into this problem of how do we design a sustainable trail? It's one of those things that I get really, really excited about. So I've been working through that. Also, still working on the audio for book one. I kind of started falling a little bit behind. It's taking a lot longer to edit the chapters than I thought it would. It's not as easy as or quick as editing this podcast. I tend to actually leave. I leave more in from the raw recording of the the podcast. And I tend to just kind of smash the, the sound pieces together. In the audiobook, I'm trying to leave little gaps, so it's it's a little more of a performance, and so it ends up sometimes, because I don't want to leave like the edge of an intake of breath on the audiobook, I think I am still not quite getting that right, but I'm working on improving that. But it turns out I'll end up listening to the same two seconds like five times. I, you know, I bring that edge in a little bit closer and a little bit more and a little bit more, trying to cut it off so you hear the whole word, and a little bit of the reverb going on, but then it cuts off before I'm going. <sighs> so I'm trying to, so it takes a lot longer to edit these chapters than I thought, but I laid out how much I need to edit every single day from a word count perspective in order to have this book out by the end of March. And so I'm kind of prioritizing that and the podcast. And then I'm typically having plenty of extra time for the writing. So that's like, that's the third thing is to, you know, keep up with my word count on book four. Then everything else that I had been kind of working on the short stories, the marketing, all those things are, they're still there, but it's only if I have time left over after those first three things. Cause like I said, it's, it's really looking pretty good that I'll be back with Metro parks. So I'm not going to have as much time to do all this creative stuff through the summer. And beyond that, I had a sale on my three books this past week and gave away quite a few copies. And somebody 
out there, I don't know who, managed to, it appears, read through the entire three-book series on Kindle Unlimited in two days, which for me is massively impressive. And if it was you, if you're listening to this, thank you so much. Um, Wow. (laughs) Well done. So that's most of what's going on this past week. By way of getting into our topic this week, I'm actually not going to start with the verses. Instead, I want to start with an issue I worked through just these past two or three weeks, and it was an issue I faced concerning Christian apologist Ravi Zacharias. Now, depending on what you've heard, you just had one of these three reactions. You have no idea who I'm talking about, you're familiar with Ravi and love his teachings, or you're familiar with his story and are potentially repulsed. Ravi Zacharias had a huge ministry and was renowned for his debates and his highly logical approach to faith and Christianity. And when I say logical, I simply mean as opposed to a highly emotional approach to faith. For me, it was not dry, though I'm sure many would think it so. In fact, he spoke deeply into my personality and how I tried to approach my faith. When he died last year of cancer, I had posted on social media that his was the first and so far only quote-unquote celebrity death that actually impacted me. Then, a couple of weeks ago, I saw a declaration and call to action by another ministry for transparency and accountability from Ravi Zacharias International Ministries regarding the allegations against Ravi. I was clueless. I had not been following his ministries or the news around them before, but obviously such a call sounded ominous, so I looked into it. Turns out, and sorry if you already know this, that Ravi, after his death, was accused of sexual misconduct by several women. An investigative team was hired by RZIM to look into it, and while the report had not yet come out, they found that yes, the allegations appeared legitimate, and that Ravi had frequented a spa where he was a partial investor and commonly asked for more than a massage, and did other acts that can really only be termed despicable by any decent moral standards. I was greatly discouraged. The question that loomed highest in my mind was how a person who displayed such great faith and goodness, who spoke with such authority and learning, could simultaneously conduct himself in such a way. This was a thing happening, we could assume, within a few days of any given sermon. So how could he stand up there and preach with such conviction and grace after having done and about to do such things? Perhaps the bigger and more personal question for me was, what stands between me and ending up like that? I sit here, somewhat anonymously still, sending my words into the universe and asking people to consider what I say and live by what I teach. And my faith, I feel, is still somewhat young. At least I haven't been doing this as long as someone like Ravi, and I recognize I have much still to learn, and so I try to keep my teaching within the realm of what I am fully convinced of, and try to remain very clear about ideas that I think are true, but I haven't firmly settled one way or another on a particular point. There were a lot of answers I tried to give myself, but the one that stuck the firmest didn't actually come until last Sunday morning. In a devotion I was reading, it had an excerpt from Spirituality for Ministry by Urban T. Holmes III, where he talked about our preoccupation with quote-unquote warm sins, like sexual misconduct, and that in those we are often Donatists. Donatism is a heresy that says the validity of the sacrament is dependent upon the moral character of the giver. Basically, that if you take communion and the person handing out the elements has committed some sin, then you aren't actually taking communion. We can extend this to the word preached, a heresy saying that any given statement or belief is only true if the person speaking it is perfect. This is obviously ridiculous. First, Christ is the only sinless person to have lived. 
Second, truth is truth no matter who speaks it, how they speak it, or the condition of their heart as they speak it. Now, this is not my declaration of universalism. I would argue that any word spoken by someone not of the faith will necessarily have some faulty element to it, that it may sound like it agrees with scripture, but some aspect of it will always be at least a little off. But I could also argue the same thing about Christians. We, too, can speak words that sound like they agree with Scripture, but in some element are tainted by our fallen nature. So we cannot believe that a good person will always speak 100% pure truth, and we must also not believe that a bad person will always speak 100% pure lies. We don't need to diminish the sins of Rafi Zacharias in any way, but we also don't need to believe every word he spoke is suddenly worthless. This is one area where we need to not be conformed to the pattern of the world. Understand that, without the Bible or some sort of authoritative text, the only thing left to test the validity of a claim are the outcomes. This is the scientific method in a nutshell. A scientist comes up with a theory based on observation of the world. He or she creates a hypothesis saying if this observation is true, then this action should bring about this reaction. They develop a test, run it, and depending on the outcome, either accept or reject the hypothesis or the theory. In the moral and ethical realm, they can only do the same thing. A person proposes an ethical way to live, that theory is tested by how they live out their lives, and if they live a quote-unquote good life, then their theory is believed to be worthwhile. In our postmodern age, there is some recognition that their particular ethical theory might not work for everyone, but at the very least, if they claim some sort of theory that, if you live this out, you will not harm anyone, and then they proceed to do great harm to some or several or many people, the general consensus is that theory is bad. But here's what we as Christians know. The sinful nature is never fully cast off until heaven. Any test we run is always run with imperfect instruments. Manufacturing tolerances are not tight. Again, this is not meant to diminish Ravi's actions. There are many faithful people who have done nothing like the harm he had caused, who have left untainted legacies of the Christian walk. Part of our problem is that he is no longer here, so he can offer no story of how he ended up where he was. He cannot offer any apology or indication of reform. So it is a fruitless search for understanding at this point, and I see no value in trying. Instead, let us use this as further proof that we should not exalt any person so high as to think them infallible, that we should study and inspect every word spoken for its agreement with the word of God. For ourselves, to avoid such an end to our ministries, let us take a lesson from Cain. Genesis chapter 4, because I think there will be some interesting correlations between our selected verses and everything we've just talked about. We aren't going to read every verse today, so hopefully you've been reading along on your own. Chapter 4 is the story of Cain and Abel and a few other descendants of Adam and Eve. For help today, I've enlisted Matthew Henry, one of the commentaries listed on blueletterbible.org. If you know and don't like Mr. Henry, I have no idea who he really is, then let's remember the first part of our episode just now and listen to the words and ideas for what truth they contain, not for any sins he may have committed or heresies he accepted. A quick internet search yielded no obvious dangers, so let's continue. We'll start partway through verse 2. Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. A few quick observations that I don't necessarily want to dwell on, for most of these are very familiar. 
One, Cain and Abel both had vocations, and there is no indication one was more worthy than the other. We fall into this trap a lot, thinking that being a pastor is a better vocation than being a janitor. Remember, we looked a few weeks ago at the truth that anything done without faith is sin, and conversely, anything done with faith and full conviction is blessed, provided we have done what we can currently to prove the word of God. So a pastor is only better than a janitor if the pastor is called by God and the janitor is not. And a janitor is better than a pastor if the janitor is called and the pastor is not. I wish I could feel like I stress this enough. I've certainly said it numerous times throughout the life of this podcast. The most important thing you can do in the world is only and exactly what God has called you to do. The thing itself is unimportant, is completely and utterly worthless compared to the obedience. Please, please do not assess the value of a person based on what job they have, how much money they make, what kind of house they have, where they live, what they look like, whether they annoy you or not. All of that is what Paul had called garbage. Anything that the world would look at and say, ah, they have done well. Cain didn't screw up because he was a gardener. But look at how their offerings were described. Cain simply brought some of the fruits of the soil, but Abel also brought an offering of the fat portions of the first fruits. Imagine a horse breeder who has had numerous horses win the Kentucky Derby, and he takes the stud and gives it to a young child who just really wants a horse. Anyone would say he could have given any horse to that child, keep the stud for himself to continue to sire thoroughbreds to continue winning Kentucky Derbies. Or someone who gives away their BMW to a family who needs a car and keeps a fully functioning Hyundai for themselves. Give away the Hyundai, people might say. It will serve that other person just as well. This is the wisdom of the world and the difference between Cain and Abel. Cain felt he only needed to give something to God. Abel knew he could give away his best and God could still bless him out of what remained. Second, Cain was very angry and his face downcast. When you give away your best, you're going to upset people whose conscience is guilty. And it doesn't matter how that person is related. It might be your family brother or sister. It might be a brother or sister in Christ. When someone is convicted of their errors, especially by the better example of someone else's actions, sin crouches at their doorstep and they will need to master it. But they, like Cain, may not. Verse 8. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Did this mean Abel shouldn't have done what he did? It is tempting to look at the outcomes of our actions and judge them. And it is important to consider the consequences of what we plan to do, but it is more important to do that beforehand, not after. How easy it is, right, to say, oh, I could have done this or that, and to be sure there may be value in that for next time. What I'm concerned with here is that we might say, well, Abel would still be alive if he hadn't given a better offering than Cain. I mean, not untrue, probably, but also I would say not helpful. Our obedience to God should never depend on how people will react to us, which is easy to say and probably even obvious to understand. And yet even I am often afraid to share my faith because I don't want people to grow in their hate of God because of me. And yet Abel still offered to God what he believed was right. We might say, well, he didn't know his brother would kill him over it. But do I know for certain people will think less of me? Or God because of what I say? And if someone says, if you speak one more word to me about God, I'll kill you, I don't think we should necessarily take that as an invitation to martyrdom. Jesus told his disciples when he sent them out in Matthew 10:14, "If they don't accept you, leave. Shake the dust off your feet." And then in verse 23, Jesus says, "If you're persecuted in one town, flee to another." But then in Acts 18, Jesus tells Paul in a vision to stay in Corinth and continue to preach even though he faced violent opposition, verse 6, and that God would protect him. 
So we can be told circumstantially to stay in a situation of persecution, but what matters most is obedience to God. For me, if someone were to say, I don't want to hear about God, I might take the cue to either leave if the situation allows, or if it would be a coworker, which actually hasn't happened to me yet, that I would try to preach by example. Always I answer questions put to me, but this is certainly an area I personally need to grow in. Skipping ahead to verses 10 through 13. The Lord said, What have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Just a passing note, something from Matthew Henry's commentary that I had never thought of before, Adam and Eve lost two sons that day, Abel murdered and Cain driven away. Here they saw clearly the full weight of their sin in the garden. Do you think Eve mourned greatly that she had ever listened to the serpent? How nice was it to know the difference between good and evil now that the full depth of evil was felt? God lost two of his children too, Adam and Eve, when they sinned. Now, Adam and Eve lost two of their children. And yet God has lost a lot more than two. According to Jesus in Matthew 7.13, many are lost and only a few find the kingdom. We also should understand that Cain and Abel were not the only two children born to Adam and Eve. First, it says in the early verses that she bore Cain and then bore Abel. Since they are the focus for the rest of the story, it was only necessary that they be named. But notice Cain says in verse 14 that whoever finds him will kill him. But who else is there? If Cain and Abel are it, then he's kind of taking care of anyone who might kill him. And very quickly, in verses 17 through 24, there are a lot of people on the earth. Enough for Cain to be building a city in verse 17. Where I want to spend the rest of my time, though, is in verses 23 through 26. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, listen to me. Wives of Lamech, hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech seventy-seven times. Adam made love to his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth, saying, God has granted me another child in place of Abel, since Cain killed him. Seth also had a son, and he named him Enosh. At that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. What had brought me to Matthew Henry's commentary was that last line. At that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. Because I was curious what that meant. Did Adam and Eve not call on the name of the Lord? So there's a couple things to talk about. First, going back to our first couple of verses, noting that Cain and Abel offered sacrifices. So there was a structured worship of God from the time Adam and Eve left the Garden of Eden. God evidently spoke directly to Cain and Abel. We see when Cain is upset that his sacrifice was not favored. Henry comments that they brought their sacrifices to Adam, as he would have been the priest for his family. I don't see that necessarily established in the text. And fast-forwarding through Genesis and Exodus, we don't see a defined and established priesthood until the tribe of Levi. Until then, there are sometimes those who sacrifice to God on behalf of others, but we also see many occasions of people setting up altars and sacrificing on their own. But regardless of how it was done, it was done. So any concept of religion or structured worship being simply a human fabrication is pretty well denounced by this fact. The next thing I want us to look at in light of this is Lamech's proclamation to his wives. Notice he did not mention God at all. He says, listen to my words, and then declares that if Cain will be avenged for any sort of retribution for his crime seven times, then he, Lamech, must be avenged 77 times. In a wonderful bit of counterpoint, look at what Jesus says in Matthew 18.22 for his followers to forgive others. Some translations say 77 times. You may be familiar with the translation 70 times 7. What I can't pin down, again the downfall of not being a Greek scholar, is that the phrase translated 70 times 
would necessarily be synonymous with 70 multiplied by, just because they're synonyms in English. 70 times 7 might be similar to our saying 4 and 20 instead of 24. However it is translated, I think this can be said with some conviction. Lamech being avenged 77 times did not come from God, but Lamech. He, in essence, called upon himself to proclaim this curse. So what is indicated here is that already worship of God is waning, or at least generations are being born that do not call on the name of the Lord. Also recognize, except for the most loose interpretation of the generations, Adam is still very much alive. Again, the one who had been perfect and innocent had named all the different creatures on the earth before God finally performed the first surgery and brought him Eve, and who had walked with God in Eden. Have you ever wondered, by the way, what they talked about? As a creative person, I can almost imagine God pointing out all the little things he had done, all the fascinating things science is now pointing out for us, of how intricate and incredible and beautiful creation is. Maybe that's just me. But if anyone should have been able to lead others in perfect worship of God, who should have raised the most God-fearing kids, Adam should have been it. So whoever needs to hear this, stop being so hard on yourself. And stop being hard on others. As much as we'd like to think they don't, our children and other people's children still have free will and can decide to ignore the most godly advice and teaching of their parents and kill their brother because of their own guilty conscience. We'll see further evidence of this moving away in Genesis 6. A second way to look at this is the interpretation, at that time, people began to call themselves by the name of the Lord, or basically to declare themselves God's people. Once again, we might see some evidence of this in Genesis 6, which we'll be getting into next week. Whether this is a good thing or not isn't clear. By declaring themselves God's people, or whether they were only crying out to God for help, there always creeps in the possibility of pride and selfishness. They may have been calling to God with impure motives, as James says in chapter 4, verse 3. They may have declared themselves God's people in order to exalt themselves above pagans or to call down special blessing on themselves. Maybe not. Maybe there was a revival going on. As we'll see, once again, in chapter 6, this might be unlikely, but we'll get there. For now, let's start bringing this back full circle. God walked with Adam and Eve in the garden, talking with them, and they got to experience him in his fullness. Within one generation, Cain, fear of God had fallen away. Jesus walked with the disciples in Israel, talking with them, and they got to experience him in his fullness. Within one generation, Ananias and Sapphira, fear of God had fallen away. There is no chance for perfection or perfect worship here on earth. There might be moments, glimpses of the kingdom of God, and we pray often that his kingdom will come and will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But it is not yet. We have earthly, fallible teachers, and we are earthly, fallible listeners. Which means a two-part sword when it comes to experiences we don't like. One, it is the product of a fallible leader, and does not represent perfectly what worship should be. Two, our dislike is the product of a fallible self, who desires an imperfect experience without realizing it. In which case, the worship might actually be well done, and we sit and grumble because we seek the wrong thing. What I don't mean is that we should necessarily tolerate false teaching. There are certainly cases where heresy has invaded a church and suffused itself into every facet of teaching. From those churches, I believe we should definitely run. What I don't want us to do is leave a church because there was that one sermon where the pastor said something we think is wrong, or the worship team keeps doing that song we don't like, or the service times are just a little inconvenient. You will have to decide for yourself what amount and array of issues you think are acceptable or not. All I ask is this. Earnestly pray and ask God if it is the church that needs to change or you. If you are being distracted from worship, is it because of the worship 
Or are you just too easily distracted by so-called imperfections that you might find anywhere you go? Part of the disadvantage, I think, to our religious freedom here in America is that any one of us might have 15 different churches to choose from, which can lead us to believe the lie that there has to be a perfect one somewhere with exactly the right mix of children's ministry, worship, teaching, opportunities to connect and serve, It reminds me of something I came to recognize in the dating world. Because there are so many people out there, it can be easy to think we can create in our minds the ideal partner, with no recognition that certain personality traits necessarily give rise to others. A person will not be a self-starter and be highly dependent on others. If they are highly dependent on others, they will need a lot of encouragement from you. If they are a self-starter, you may feel like they don't really need you. Think of it this way. Why do people in the city sometimes feel so lonely and can't seem to find a partner while people in rural areas are still getting married? You would think if finding a spouse was a matter of finding one out of seven billion, your chances would be greater in a city and almost nil in the country. So how do people in China, where churches are highly persecuted and often underground, find a church they can thrive and grow in while those in America can't seem to settle on a worship experience they love and go from church to church to church? Perhaps, like Cortez, we need to burn our ships. Get rid of any option to bail. If you aren't committed to worshiping God no matter what, if someone else's better sacrifice makes you want to kill them, then it should be no surprise you won't continue to make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you, as we're told in Colossians 3.13. We have to want to stay there, to make it work. Fascinating, isn't it, how the relationship between Christ and the church is like the relationship between husband and wife. Remember this, if you do what is right, you will be accepted. But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door and desires to have you. No matter what other people are doing around you, you have the option to choose to do right and keep sin away from your door. Next week, we'll be glossing very quickly through Genesis 5 and spending most of our time in Genesis 6. Feel free to read through both chapters before then and join me next Saturday for our continuing commentary on the Old Testament. Until then, keep the faith and keep it old school. Old school.